0: Today is the awesome key in our sermon series. Now, I'm wondering how many here have ever seen the fireworks at Disney World? How many? Oh, the vast majority, vast majority. They've been there for a long time. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary, right? And also, the uh, fireworks display that they've had has been called Happily Ever After, That particular iteration of the fireworks, it came to an end on September 30th. For their 50th anniversary, they were starting a whole new program, fireworks program. And so the Kent Drake family, Kent was just up here leading the worship, they were there for that final fireworks display, and Michaela got a little video of it. And so I want to show you, it's about 30 seconds here, of the grand finale of the Happily Ever After fireworks show that they're never going to do again as of October moving forward. And then I'll come back and tell you why I'm even showing that to you. Let's roll. Now, the Drake said they waited five and a half hours in front of the castle to see that fireworks display. You know, you have to get your spot early, and but they said it was absolutely worth it. And Michaela said when it was over, now she's a Disney girl, but she said when it was over, she had tears in her eyes. She wasn't the only one in the audience. And normally, when it's done, that's the last thing everybody bolts for the exits. But she said after that particular show, everybody just after cheering stayed there in front of the castle as if I wish it could just keep on going. Now, what is it about fireworks that we're drawn to? I want you to wonder something with me. And what I'm wondering is, we're thinking about awesomeness of God today, the the reverent fear and awe of God. I wonder if there isn't something within us that craves awe, that desires awe. and Maybe that's why we're drawn to spectacles like fireworks or movies with huge special effects. Or concerts where they have these special effects on stage. Maybe there's something in us that craves that and we're drawn to it. In last week's message, we were talking about the fear of God in the sense of reverent fear and awe of God. And we used a little bit of astronomy to illustrate that. But Peter continues that thought in the section of Scripture this morning and he says, what we are to awe about is some things that we know about God. Now, I want to get those verses before us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. One version actually says reverent fear and awe. Uh, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, there are four things we know about God that raises our sense of reverent fear and awe for God that are in these verses. And I want to take those one at a time, kind of in chronological order, not necessarily how they're listed here in the scriptures. All right, number one is awesome foreknowledge, the awesome foreknowledge of God. Verse 20, for he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And we speak of the foreknowledge of God, it, it's a subcategory of His omniscience. And omniscience means that God is all-knowing. That is true only of God. Omni means all, science means knowledge. So God is omniscient, all knowledge. That means He knows every detail of everything that has happened in the past. What we call history. He knows every detail of what's happening right now. And God knows with absolute certainty, every detail of what is going to happen in the future. That is foreknowledge. There are theologians who deny the foreknowledge of God. It's called open theism. And the reason is they cannot understand how God could foreknow free will choices of free will beings like us that have not been made yet. Well, I don't understand it either, but the Scripture clearly teaches it, so we can believe it without fully understanding it. Let me just give you an example from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, where God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet been done. And when Peter says that God foreknew everything about Jesus, it means that even before Jesus of Nazareth was created, God foreknew him and what role he was going to play in the plan of salvation. Sometimes when we, there's a colloquialism in the English language that describes a person who seems to be several steps ahead in his thinking and planning ahead of his opponent. Now let me see if you can guess what it is. I'm just going to give you a, a, a little clue here. It's kind of obscure, but maybe somebody will get it. We say that that person is playing 3D what? All right. I know. It's so obscure. Maybe somebody, I might have heard somebody say it. We say they're playing 3D chess. Have you ever heard that figure of speech? It was used in Star Trek. Spock, so smart, always playing. He played 3D chess. That's how you describe somebody who's several steps ahead of their peers or their opponents. Sometimes we look at our political leaders or our military leaders or our our economic leaders and we say, you know what, they look like they're losing. I sure hope they're playing 3D chess. Often we're disappointed that they're not. They're playing Chinese checkers instead of 3d chess. but this is this colloquialism applies to God. I'm simply saying here he's playing 3d chess. He is ahead of the game. he's ahead of everybody else, ahead of his enemies who would oppose him. God is the person you want in charge of your salvation because he is all-knowing. First Corinthians 2:8. Paul records that the rulers of this world, if they had understood God's plan, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. They just don't understand. They cannot keep up with God. It's awesome, His foreknowledge. All right, number two, awesome reveal. Second truth about God. Call it the awesome reveal. He was revealed, Christ was, in these last times for your sake let me tell you something. On September 5th of last year, 2020, there was a gender reveal party. You know, a gender reveal party. It was held in El Dorado, California, and for the party, they deployed a smoke bomb with colored smoke to indicate the sex of the baby. So it'd be blue smoke for the boy, right, and pink smoke for the girl. However, the smoke bomb started a fire. In the wooded, drought-stricken area, the fire spread in the El Dorado Ranch Park, as well as parts of San Bernardino County, Riverside County. It was finally extinguished two and a half months later, on November 16th, having burned 22,744 acres. Wow, that's a big reveal. By the way, it was a boy, and I did a little research. I got a sonogram of the baby. Let us show that sonogram. Yeah, there he is. (laughs) Parents, let me recommend. Parents, for your gender reveal party, just use the cupcakes with the blue icing or the pink icing in the middle. Let them grow up and start their own fires later on. That was a big reveal in a destructive way. Jesus' reveal was a big reveal in a constructive way, in a productive way. Peter says he was revealed in these last times. What's that referring to? These last times. It's probably not referring to the end of times as we think of it, the return of Jesus followed by the great judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, these last times is the final era of time, the final epic of time. So you had the patriarchal age, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have, that was followed by the Mosaic age. When Moses came, you had the law of Moses. And then you had the Messianic age. That begins with the birth of Christ and continues until the second coming of Christ. The messianic age are the end times. It's these last times. We're living in these last times, the messianic age. People have been for the last 2,000 years. And Christ was revealed, meaning He was incarnated. Speaking there of the incarnation. That's awesome. Just to have seen any theophany of God would have been awesome. A theophany is a physical manifestation of God. So when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, if to be Moses and see that uh, would have been awesome. Uh, God appeared as a, a flaming pillar of fire leading the Israelites at night. That would have been awesome. The angel of the Lord, if you read about that in the Old Testament, that's usually a physical manifestation of God, the angel of the Lord. But what Peter is talking about here. Is the incarnation when the Logos, the second member of the Trinity, became enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth. And so the people who saw Jesus saw God. The people who heard Jesus speak heard God speak. And those who were touched by Jesus were touched by God. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life, this one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. The Logos just didn't decide one day, hey, I wonder what it feels like to be human. I think I'll give that a try. No, Peter says, in these last times, he was revealed for your sake. Again, John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 5. He appeared in order to take away our sins. Awesome. reveal. All right, here's a third factor. Awesome. Ransom. Ransom. Now, in some of your versions, it may have redemption or redeem, but the the Greek word there is for ransom. Verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom, ransomed us from an empty way of life. That's Any way of life outside of God's will, outside of Christ, it's empty, it's meaningless, without significance. Not that someone can't do something significant in this world and in this life, but when that person dies, it's done, it's over. So what did it matter? What did it count for? We're ransomed from an empty, meaningless life into a life that is full, not empty, but full, full of meaning and full of significance. Because, as Peter said earlier, we have an inheritance that's eternal in heaven to look forward to. We're going to keep living in God's will, and so what we do here does have meaning, and it does have significance. Um, He says here, he speaks of mere gold. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I've studied a lot about gold. One thing about gold, it is a metal that is almost indestructible. Now, we live on the Treasure Coast, so supposedly there's a lot of treasure out there. If you were to skin dive this afternoon or get on your scuba gear and you swam out there and you discovered a chest full of gold, all right, you pull it up, you polish it up, it's pretty much going to be just as valuable, really, because it's ancient, even more valuable as it was 300 years ago because it will not be corroded The salt water does not corrode gold. It doesn't interact as other metals do with air and with salt. Therefore, nearly all of the gold that's ever been mined in human history is still in existence. And it does have value. But Peter says here gold and silver lose their value and he refers to it as mere gold. Now that simply points to the incalculable value of the currency with which we were ransomed. And that is the blood of Christ. Peter refers to Him as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. That points back into the Old Testament system of sacrifices where a lamb was sacrificed in place of a Jewish male to take His place. All of that foreshadowed Christ being our sinless, spotless means sinless, Lamb of God. J. Paul Getty was once the richest man in the world, oil baron, J. Paul Getty. But he was known as a bit of a miser. In 1976, his 17-year-old grandson was kidnapped and held for a $27 million ransom, which Getty refused to pay until the, the ear of the grandson was mailed to the family and with a note that said, you're going to continue to get pieces of your grandson until we get that ransom. And so at that point, J. Paul Getty changed his mind, and he contributed to the father of the son, he contributed to his son $2.2 million of the ransom. He gave that amount because that was the maximum that could, was tax deductible as a gift, $2.2 million. He lent the rest of the ransom money to his son, with the understanding that the son would pay it back at 4% interest. So they paid the ransom, and shortly after they, they did so, the son was dropped off at a gas station, and he was okay other than missing an ear. And his mother encouraged him to call Grandpa and thank him for the ransom. So he made the call, and J. Paul Getty refused to take the phone call. Now compare and contrast that attitude Of that grandfather with the attitude of God, who willingly chose Christ and paid a ransom in the blood of his son for our sins. And it's not as if he forced the son, the Logos, Christ, to do this. Jesus said, No one takes my life, I give it willingly. In the Psalms, Jesus is speaking, and he says, A body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will, O God. Both Father and Son willingly paid this incalculable price for our ransom. Awesome ransom. And then there's one more. Awesome foreknowledge, awesome reveal, awesome ransom. And finally, awesome resurrection. Awesome resurrection. Verse 21. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead. Now, so Jesus was ransomed. He was crucified. But that's not the end of the story. He was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus inaugurates a new creation. It's as if a seed was planted and the plant begins to grow. When it reaches its final fruition, you have an entire new heavens and new earth that are unstained by sin. So our hope and faith, as Peter says, is in God. And the way that works is you have the Bible's declarations that Jesus was raised from the dead. The only way to explain that, those testimonies, is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And the only way that He really could have been resurrected is that God resurrected Him. So there is nothing that affirms our faith and our hope like the resurrection of Jesus, which points to that hope and faith is in God Himself. The Bible actually says right here, Peter says, that you believe into God. Uh, the word there, in, is not, in the Greek it would be E-N, which is translated in, it's actually E-I-S, ice, into It is the same word that's used in Galatians 3.27 and Romans 6.3 where Paul says all of us who are baptized into Christ. And here Peter says you believe into God. Which simply points to the fact that faith or belief is one of the four gospel commands by which we enter into the salvation of God. We believe, we repent, We confess Jesus as Lord and we're baptized into Christ. And again, it's that resurrection that uh, informs and affirms our belief. It's where God brought the receipts, so to speak, the evidence and the proof of Jesus. Now... Why should we believe that? I said the Bible has the testimony about the resurrections of Jesus. And really, more specifically, it's certain disciples who gave that testimony. One of those disciples is the author of the letter that we're studying today, Peter. He gave his testimony. We have it right here in his first letter. We also have it in the Gospels. History tells us that the Gospel of Mark, the primary source for the Gospel of Mark was probably Peter. Peter was discipled or Mark, rather, was a disciple by Peter, and Mark got most of the content for his gospel from Peter. So when you're reading the gospel of Mark, it is in large part the testimony of Peter, and there he gives his testimony that he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Why should we believe that testimony? A couple of reasons. Number one, Peter and all the rest of the apostles. They were holding forth for the highest ethical, moral standard of life that the world has ever known. It would be extremely odd if they were violating that in the, in the testimony, and the witness that they were given. But not only that, how did, how did Peter die? How did Peter die? Well, he definitely died a martyr's death. And this is alluded to by Jesus in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked, you dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted to go, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus said, follow me. The Bible does not say specifically how Peter died, but we know it was a martyr's death of some kind, but history does tell us. And the ancient historians are unanimous. And their communication that Peter died by crucifixion during the persecution of Nero in AD 64. Now whether he was crucified upside down, that's not as certain. But it is historically certain that Peter died by crucifixion under that persecution. As, As many have noted, some men will die for what they believe to be the truth. No one will die for what he knows to be a lie. And certainly Peter believed in his own mind, as did the rest of those witnesses, that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Let me tell you one more thing. You you may or may not know this. Who knows who the Roman emperor was when Jesus was crucified? It was Caesar Augustus when he was born, but it wasn't when he died. Anybody happen to know? I, I wouldn't know either if I hadn't researched this. But it was Tiberius. Okay, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was crucified. It was Tiberius who had put Pontius Pilate in place. We know from two ancient historians, Eusebius is one and Tertullian is the other. We know from two ancient historians that when Emperor Tiberius received the news of Jesus' crucifixion and the reports of his resurrection, Tiberius petitioned the Roman Senate to declare Jesus of Nazareth a god. Now, the Roman Senate did not do that, but Tiberius made that petition, petition, and he sponsored it. Now, that, that, of course, doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the grave, It just points to the fact that even at that time, at that very time, there was something significant about these reports of the resurrection of Jesus that shook to the core the most powerful man in the Western civilized world at that time. There were other Jewish rabbis who claimed to be the Messiah before, during, and after Jesus. There were others who claimed to be the Son of God. But only this one caught the attention of the emperor and received that petition. The resurrection of Jesus is so awesome. The Apostle Paul can compare it to only one other event. And the thing he compares it to is the creation of the world ex nihilo, which, which means out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. First law of thermodynamics. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Creation ex nihilo has only happened one time. But Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, God who gives life to the dead, that's the resurrection, and calls into being that which does not exist, that's creation ex nihilo. Awesome resurrection. As we close would you sing this song with me. It'll probably be familiar to most of you. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God Is an awesome God, He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come in awe of you this morning as we've refreshed our minds and our hearts about your awesome omniscience, your foreknowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. The revelation of Christ as He was born into this world. The awesome death of Christ, His sacrifice that ransomed us from an empty way of life into a full way of life. The awesome resurrection, nothing like it in the world, only comparable to the creation of the world, but now the new creation. We love you and hold you in reverent fear and awe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.